0: Welcome back to The Law. I am D.K. Williams, and this is episode 24. We're going to talk about Warren versus District of Columbia. This week could be considered a continuation from last week when we discussed the Gonzalez v. Castle Rock case that went to the United States Supreme Court and the fact that law enforcement is absolutely no responsibility to you. They have a general amorphous duty to the collective to society, to the general public, but not to any individual, not to you, not to me, not to your mom, not to your favorite bartender, certainly not to Jessica Gonzalez, who begged the police in her town of Castle Rock, Colorado, for help when her three daughters had been kidnapped by her violent ex-husband, against whom she had a restraining order, and who subsequently murdered the girls before he himself died in a gunfight with police, and not to Carolyn Warren, who is the named plaintiff in this week's case. Not Miriam Douglas or, or Joan Taliaferro, who are also plaintiffs in this case that uh, we're talking about today. Or to Wilfred Nickel, who also had a claim that was discussed in the case we're going to talk about today. They're the plaintiffs in this week's case. And we'll discuss that in more detail as uh, we get into it. But first, The Law with DK Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network. Always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. And follow me on social media, Twitter at Blue Carp and Facebook.com slash Blue Carp. I'd love to hear from you. And next week I can tell you that what we'll be discussing, a case came out today from the United States Supreme Court. It was called Tims, T-I-M-B-S. Timbs versus Indiana, where the unanimous U.S. Supreme Court said that states could not impose excessive fines or forfeiture. And in this case, Timbs was a guy who was convicted in a $400 drug transaction. And the state used that as an excuse to steal his $42,000 car he had purchased with insurance money from his dad's death. But that's next week. So at least that type of highway robbery sanctioned by the government and the police will at least no longer be as easy or allowed quite as blatantly. And wherever you're listening... Ask you to like, comment, share, and subscribe, if you are so inclined, because this is America. And you don't have to do anything you don't want to. Well, except pay taxes and comply with legislation and regulation and otherwise face the threat of government violence and a government gun pointed right at you. But you do not have to listen to this podcast. That's completely up to you. And if you want, like, comment, subscribe, share it, and spread the word. You don't have to. But it'd be a lot cooler if you did. All right, this week's case. Warren versus District of Columbia. This is not a U.S. Supreme Court case. It is from the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, which is basically the equivalent of a state Supreme Court. D.C. obviously is not a state. It's a federal district. But it still has its own local crime, right? Its own civil disputes. And so it has its own local court system and its own court of appeals. I had no idea this was a thing. It makes sense. I just had never uh, been exposed to it. And I also learned that unlike the states... I guess most states, it may be one that's like DC, but most ones I know of, where states have an intermediate level of an appellate court. So like in Colorado, you got your trial courts, you can appeal to the Court of Appeals, and then from there, you can appeal to the Supreme Court. That's normal, but the District of Columbia just has trial courts and a Court of Appeals. That's it. It looks like what they may do, because what they did in this case was, so trial courts in D.C. had a ruling. It got appealed to the Court of Appeals. Now, what they did in this case was the Court of Appeals, which is the highest level in D.C., they have a three-judge panel out of seven. And so the three-judge panel heard it, and then somebody appealed to the entire court, Court of Appeals. And that's it. So all seven of them then heard the case. So it's kind of like you've got an intermediate level court, but you know, it's the same court. It's the same, three of the same judges will hear your case on banc. So three will hear it. And then if they agree to, if they say that they want to hear it on banc, which means all of them, then seven will hear it, but three have already heard it. So you pretty much know what those three are going to do. I mean, they could change their mind, but they usually don't. So while this case has no national value and precedent, it only applies to the District of Columbia, no other... Court in the United States of America has to do what they said in this case. But it is still widely cited. It's perfectly in line with the holding of the United States Supreme Court in that Castle Rock v. Gonzalez case. And it cites cases from throughout the country. So while it has zero presidential value outside of D.C., it's correct and I think represents correct jurisprudence that every state would adopt if they haven't already. All right, so this case, Warren v. D.C., was decided in 1981. So it predates the Gonzalez case by over two decades. And you know when I do the U.S. Supreme Court cases, I like to mention the justices involved in the decision, who agreed, who dissented, who did concurrences or whatever. No need to do that here. No one knows who these people are. But it was a unanimous 7-0 decision. So the D.C. Court of Appeals explained the issues and what happened before this case got to them the highest court in the district of columbia this is some frightening horrifying fact patterns here it's pretty horrible so be prepared so the court says describes appellants carolyn warren she's the name plaintiff in this case she's on it miriam douglas and joan taliaferro they were all involved in one scenario where they were all victims of crime. And then there was another plaintiff, Wilfred Nickel, who had a separate case involving separate facts, but they're all being heard together because they had the same issue. What duty the police owe to an individual? And like in the Gonzales v. Castro case, the answer is none. So those plaintiffs sued DC for negligent failure, To provide adequate police services, the trial judges, because there's two cases, remember, held that the police were under no specific legal duty to provide protection to the individual appellants and dismiss the complaints. Then that decision went up to the three-judge division of the Court of Appeals. From there, the D.C. Court of Appeals. On heard the whole thing after the arguments And the court says, quote, notwithstanding our sympathy for appellants who are the tragic victims of despicable criminal acts, we affirm the judgments of the dismissals. All right, so in this first case involving three women, the Warren case, here's the horrifying sequence of events. And I'm quoting from the opinion itself. In the early morning hours of March 16th, 1975. Appellants Carol Warren, Joan Taliaferro, and Miriam Douglas were asleep in their rooming house at 1112 Lamont Street Northwest. Warren and Taliaferro shared a room on the third floor of the house. Douglas shared a room on the second floor with her four-year-old daughter. The women were awakened by the sound of the back door being broken down by two men later identified as Marvin Kent and James Morse. The men entered Douglas' second floor room, where Kent forced Douglas to sodomize him, and Morse raped her. Warren and Taliaferro heard Douglas screams from the floor below, because they're in the third floor. Warren telephoned the police, told the officer on duty that the house therein was being burglarized, requested immediate assistance. The department employee who took the call told her to remain calm, and assured her that police assistance would be dispatched promptly. Warren's call was received at the Metropolitan Police Department headquarters at 6:23 a.m. and was recorded as a burglary in process. At 6:26, so three minutes later, a call was dispatched to officers on the street as a code two assignment. Although calls of a crime in progress should be given priority and designated as code one. Okay, back to me. That's definitely a mistake. Does it mean that there is a cause of action? Well, the court's ultimately going to decide no. But that's definitely a mistake. Calling it a code two when it should be code 1 because it's a, uh, a crime in progress. Okay, back to the description. Four police cruisers responded to the broadcast. Three to the Lamont Street address and went to another address to investigate a possible suspect. Meanwhile, Warren and Taliaferro crawled from their window. Remember, they were the ones who made the call while the other woman was being raped. Warren and Taliaferro crawled from their window onto an adjoining roof and waited for the police to arrive. While there, they saw one policeman, drive through the alley behind their house and proceed to the front of the residence without stopping leaning out the window or getting out of the car to check the back entrance of the house he just drove by a second officer apparently knocked on the door in front of the residence but left when he received no answer The three officers departed the scene at 6.33 a.m., five minutes after they had arrived. Warren and Tally Farrell crawled back inside their room. They again heard Douglas continuing screams. Again, they called the police. They told the officer that the intruders had entered the home and requested immediate assistance. Once again, a police officer assured them that help was on the way. The second call was received at 6.42 a.m. and recorded merely as, Investigate the Trouble. It was never dispatched to any police officers. Believing the police might be in the house, Warren and Tallyferro called down to Douglas, thereby alerting Kent to their presence. Kent and Morse, the two bad guys, then forced all three women at knife point to accompany them to Kent's apartment. For the next 14 hours, the women were held captive, raped, robbed, beaten, forced to commit sexual acts upon each other, and made to submit to the sexual demands of Kent and Morse. I I can't think of anything much more horrifying than this, and this is directly from the opinion. So, appellant's claims of negligence included the dispatcher's failure to forward the 623 call with the proper degree of urgency, the responding officer's failure to follow standard police investigative procedures, specifically, their failure to check the rear entrance and position themselves properly near the doors and windows to ascertain whether there was any activity inside and the dispatcher's failure to dispatch the 6:42 a.m. call. That's the horrifying facts of the three women. The other case isn't quite as horrifyingly bad, but it's bad enough. So this is the other case. On April 30th, 1978, at approximately 11:30 p.m., appellant Nickel Stopped his car for a red light at the intersection of Missouri Avenue and Sixteenth Street Northwest. Unknown occupants in a vehicle directly behind appellant struck his car in the rear several times. I guess they had to back up and do it again right and then proceeded to beat appellant about the face and head breaking his jaw a Metropolitan Police Department officer arrived at the scene. In response to the officer's direction, Nichols' companion ceased any further efforts to obtain identification information of the assailants. When the officer then failed to get the information, leaving Nichols unable to institute legal action against his assailants, Nichols brought a negligence action against the officer, the Metro Police Department, and the District of Columbia. All right, so in this case, Nichols, the guy who got rear-ended and beat up and had his... Face broken. So this case isn't about the police stopping a crime in progress they might have been able to stop, like the Warren case. The police certainly could have stopped that from going on for 14 hours or whatever it was. In this case, bad guys beat this guy up, hurting bad, got away, and the police didn't make, the, the allegation is the police didn't make any effort to find out who it was, and then Nichols couldn't sue them. All right, so this case is about failure to get contact info on a potential claim against these defendants. So it's very different, but the same idea. What duty do the police owe to these individuals? And here's the bottom line from the court's opinion. A government and its agents are under no general duty to provide public services such as police protection to any particular individual citizen. The duty to provide public services is owed to the public at large and absent a special relationship between the police and an individual, no specific legal duty exists, period. Which is completely in line with the Gonzalez and Castle Rock case, right? But when I read this p- provision, I immediately asked myself, what, pretel would comprise such a special relationship? where the police would have an obligation to help an individual. So the D.C. Court of Appeals mentioned some. So one is when a school crossing guard and the course of conduct of that school crossing guard and the police requirement that an absent guard be replaced and somebody was relying on that course of conduct created a special relationship. And these examples are from other jurisdictions. Another one is the use of an auto accident victim to aid police investigation by walking to a point of impact in the street. So they t- the police told this guy, walk out here right? And then apparently something happened to that guy. So that guy could sue. Another one was when a youth with known homicidal tendencies was placed in a foster home. And apparently the people, the foster parents weren't told about it, his homicidal tendencies. Another one was the return of a victim for a show-up identification of still violent assault suspects. So again, they're, they're, the police are telling someone, come here, identify these people, and putting them in harm, harm's way. This is a pretty bad one. Recruitment of a citizen informant in a national organized violent crime case. So they're saying, help us out. Help us get information on these violent mobsters. And in that case, there's a special relationship where the individual could sue the police for violating their duty. All right, so absent something like that or those other examples, police owe you no specific duty of any kind. And no special relationship existed in these cases with Warren or Nichols or the other woman. So in the Nichols case where the guy got beat up, the court said, the officer's duty to get that identification was one directly related to his official and general duty to investigate the offenses. His actions and failings were solely related to his duty to the public generally and possessed no additional element necessary to create an overriding special relationship and duty. The DC court cited a case from New Jersey with language I think is important. It's got two words in it that I think we should all repeat whenever this topic comes up. The language the DC court quoted and cites with approval, police officer statements to injured motorcyclists that he would obtain name of motorist who struck the motorcycle was a gratuitous promise and did not create a special legal duty. Is that a gratuitous promise in other words it's meaningless police promises and indeed i submit all responses or all promises from any agents of the state are as useless as nipples on a bowl or useless as a referee in a pro wrestling match gratuitous promise is meaningless we should again adopt this phrase in our everyday life see how it works yeah honey i know i said i'd get some milk on the way home but that was a gratuitous promise come on it didn't mean anything the dc court of appeal said so or sure man i said i'd pay you back but that was a gratuitous promise forget about it and you get the idea where this gratuitous promise idea comes, you know, where it would lead if it applied to anywhere else except the government. So the D.C. Court of Appeals it says tough, quote, It is easy to condemn the failings of the police. However, the desire for condemnation could not satisfy the need for a special relationship out of which a duty to specific persons arises. In neither of these cases has a relationship been alleged beyond that found in general police responses to crimes. Civil liability fails as a matter of law. Then they keep going, quote, this uniformly accepted rule rests upon the fundamental principle that a government and its agents are under no general duty to provide public services, such as police protection, to any particular individual citizen. There you go. That's it right there. And the Castle Rock case says essentially the same thing. And like how they talk about provide public services and they say such as police protection. So that means there could be other things, right? Like fire department, any other number of things that the government provides. The government's not under any general duty to give it to you or any individual. And the D.C. Court of Appeals cites a U.S. Supreme Court that I submit isn't really applicable. They, they cite Turner v. U.S. And in that case, it, it deals with a Creek Indian nation and Congress's authority over the Creek Indian nation and some jurisdictional issues that really distinguish it from these other cases. I, it seems a reach to me. And sometimes judges will do that. They'll find something that may not be exactly on point, try to stretch it a little bit, Especially if they're trying to use a U.S. Supreme Court case, because that's got all the the power behind it. And remember, I'm not criticizing this notion that the police don't have any obligation to help you as an individual. It's really the only way to operate a government to the extent we're going to have a government. And we discussed this last week in the Castle Rock case. The court in Warren explains, or does its best to, it says, A publicly maintained police force constitutes a basic governmental service provided to benefit the community at large by promoting public peace, safety, and good order. The extent and quality of police protection afforded to the community necessarily depends upon the availability of public resources and upon legislative or administrative determinations concerning allocation of those resources. They cite a New York case. The public, through its representative officials, recruits, trains, maintains, and disciplines its police force and determines the manner in which personnel are deployed. At any given time, publicly furnished police protection may accrue to the personal benefit of individual citizens but at all times the needs and interests of the community at large predominate the collective right? this amorphous general good of the of the people court goes on private resources and needs have little direct effect upon the nature of police services provided to the public accordingly courts have without exception concluded that when a municipality or other government entity undertakes to furnish police services it assumes a duty only to the public at large and not to individual members of the community dereliction in the performance of police duties may therefore be addressed only in the context of public prosecution and not in a private suit for money damages and i'm not exactly sure what they mean by public prosecution do they mean like bad press in the public Do that means like voting the officials out voting the the city council people or whoever it is that hires the chief of police are voting out the sheriff Is that what they mean? The court goes on. This role of duty owed to the public at large. Again, I'm just just digging how they talk about this, this amorphous concept of the public at large. But that's what they talk about. So the public at large apparently isn't comprised of individuals. No, no, individuals don't get any specific protection. Just everybody gets protection. But nobody gets it, but everybody gets it. All right, back to the court. This role of duty owed to the public at large has been most frequently applied in cases involving complaints of inadequate protection during urban riots or mob violence. Many of these cases challenge the preparedness of the police to handle such situations, while others challenging the tactical decisions made to curtail or remove police protection from the riot areas. In one case, officials of the Metropolitan Police Department of the District of Columbia had decided to limit police presence in the area of a particular company store during the 1968 riots this store murphy store was destroyed and the company filed a claim against dc contending that the police department had deliberately or negligently abandoned its policing obligations during the riots and thereby permitted rioters to destroy Murphy's property. In affirming the dismissal of Murphy's claim against the district, the United States Court of Appeals, which is the court writing this particular case with Warren, for the District of Columbia, held that D.C. had no direct legal obligation to Murphy, and that Murphy, therefore, had no substantive right to recover damages resulting from failure of the government or its officers to keep the peace. No right to recover damages because the government screws up. Again, that's the only way to run a government. But we need to disabuse ourselves or anybody else of the notion that the government is going to take care of you. You hear that all the time from statophiles, right? People who love the state. The state will take care of us. Well, the state's telling you they're not. So who are you going to believe? Fantasies of Bernie supporters or the courts themselves telling you The government has no duty to take care of you. And here's an example of this. They uh, cited a Florida case. In that case, plaintiff had contacted the St. Petersburg Police Department and made arrangements for specific police protection while making deliveries in a dark and secluded part of the city. The plaintiff had been previously attacked... While making such deliveries, and accordingly, relied upon the assurances of police personnel that officers would be on the scene. Following carefully the instructions given him by the police, plaintiff was nevertheless shot by assailants. The order dismissing plaintiff's complaint against the city was affirmed on the grounds that, in the absence of a special relationship not present in that case, the police department was under no duty to protect the plaintiff. Again, it's just a gratuitous promise, even though the police said, okay, we got your back on this. This, You've got a problem, right? We got going to this particular part of town, making this particular delivery. We're going to help you out. And then they don't. Well, tough luck. Just a gratuitous promise. And here's another one where cops know about something specific and they don't stop it, or they don't even try to stop it, or they try very little. And again, there's no duty to do it. D.C. Court of Appeals uh, cites an Arizona case where the Arizona court affirmed the dismissal of a complaint, alleging that the deputy sheriff and the county employing him were negligent in failing to apprehend two reckless drivers. According to the complaint, the deputy sheriff saw two youths leave a local tavern. So the deputy sheriff saw this, saw two youths leave a local tavern and drive their cars away at excessive speeds. The deputy sheriff then allegedly followed the two cars, watching them weave back and forth, drive on the wrong side of the road, an attempt to pass on a hill. The officer made no attempt to apprehend the drivers or prevent their reckless conduct. Shortly thereafter, the two reckless drivers collided with an oncoming vehicle causing the deaths of five of the six persons involved. The Arizona Superior Court had concluded that the duty of defendants to arrest the reckless drivers was a duty owed to the general public and not to the deceased occupants of the oncoming vehicle. Can't get any clearer than that, right? Now, assuming these allegations are true, and that's what the court has to do in a motion to dismiss. So even if you get past the motion to dismiss, so even if the Arizona Court had said, okay, yes, you can proceed to a jury trial, at that point, then the plaintiff must convince the jury that what he said happened actually happened. The jury's got to believe all of these things he just said, or most of it. So the plan still has to demonstrate and prove to a jury that what the deputy sheriffs did here was negligent. And it is, except one thing, the absence of a duty. What duty? The duty to do their job. Well, for you. They don't have to do it for you. And if they don't have to do it for you, you can't sue when they don't do their job and five people die. And ultimately this is a way to protect the police, the state, because the police are just part of the state. They're the part of the state with the guns or one part of the state with the guns. And these cases, this DC court of appeals case, these cases cited by it, all are protecting the government from civil liability. Because if every time the police screwed up, they had to pay for it, the government would run out of money. They have to raise taxes on everybody else. And again, this is the important point. It shouldn't surprise anyone that the government courts protect the government police. And we discussed qualified immunity back in episode four of the law. And that's another way courts have made things up to protect the executive branch the police are part of the executive branch. This case, however, just like the Castle Rock case from last week, which was episode 23, is about the legal conclusion that the police simply have no duty to help you. And in a case where they do have a duty, they can still have qualified immunity. Again, go back to episode four for that. All right, a little bit more about this special relationship where law enforcement can have a duty to a specific person. The D.C. Court of Appeals in this Warren case cited a New York case where it was said, quote, the general duty owed to the public." may become a specific duty owed to an individual if the police and the individual are at a special relationship different from that existing between the police and citizens generally. Thus, when the New York Police Department solicited confidential informant to aid in apprehension of gangster Willie Sutton, the police assumed a special duty to the informant who came forward. So that's the one we mentioned briefly a bit ago. So if the police want you to go undercover for them, To help get evidence against a gangster, they have created a special relationship and owe you a specific duty. The D.C. Court of Appeals in this Warren case mentions a few other cases from across the country where a court found that special relationship, but there's no particular consistency in these cases. Sometimes the court finds a special relationship, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's just an illusory promise. So the court gets back to Warren, the three women, and the one guy who got beat up in their particular case that came out of D.C. Plaintiffs in this action contend that they, too, entered a special relationship with the police, when Warren and Taliaferro, two of the women, telephoned to request assistance, courts which have had the opportunity to consider comparable situations have concluded that a request for aid is not in itself sufficient to create a special duty. Well, if it was sufficient, I mean, it would really open up the number of people who the police did owe a duty to and who people could sue. And that wouldn't work for the same reasons we talked about. It would just cost the government too much money, they'd have to raise taxes on everybody. And how would it work? Let's say you call the police on someone who's threatening you. Then he shoots you the next week. How long does that special relationship last? I don't know. I don't think it would be workable. But again, the point isn't that we should be appalled that the police have no specific duty to you or me or your mom or your bartender. The point is that whoever suggests the police will protect you is so blatantly wrong. Of course, the police won't protect you. And of course, this, this argument that the police will protect you, this blatantly, obviously wrong argument, plays into the right to bear arms. You know how it goes. Oh, you don't need guns? Only the government needs guns. Well, why? Because the government will protect you. Well, that's nonsense. We just have read this from the courts multiple times. So you do need your own guns. One more case the District of Columbia Court of Appeals mentions in support of their dismissal of these plaintiff's claims is also out of New York. And this one is very much like the Gonzalez v. Castlerot case from last week. So, in this case that the Warren Court is referring to, the plaintiff had complained to the police numerous times about a rejected suitor who had threatened her repeatedly. In response to plaintiff's desperate pleas for help, the police rendered only nominal assistance and refused to help plaintiff further. Plaintiff received a last-chance threat from the suitor and once more called the police without success. The following day, The suitor carried out his threat by having a hired thug throw lie in her face. The court held that plaintiff's pleas for help did not create a special relationship between herself and the police and could not serve as the basis of liability. Gonzalez last week had a restraining order. The the plaintiff in this case did not. So Gonzalez had the better case. And the U.S. Supreme Court says, doesn't matter. Police have no duty to protect Gonzalez or this lady in New York who had the lie thrown in her face or you, or me. The D.C. Court of Appeals goes on, the public duty concept has drawn some criticism for purportedly creating the rule that because we owe a duty to everybody, we owe it to nobody. They're citing a dissent in that New York case, which I've mentioned a moment ago, that idea. If we owe a duty to everybody, to general society, but we don't owe it to anyone specifically, that might be right for some criticism. So the court acknowledges that, but they don't buy it. They go on, public officials at all levels remain accountable to the public and the public maintains elaborate mechanisms to enforce its rights both formally in the courts and less formally through internal disciplinary proceedings. In the case of the D.C. Metro Police, officers are subject to criminal charges and a penalty of two years imprisonment for failure to arrest lawbreakers. Okay, that sounds interesting. I didn't know that was such a thing. But anybody who thinks a DA is going to prosecute a cop for that is out of their minds. It's just not going to happen. It can be on the books, but it's not going to happen. But the court goes on. Additionally, police officers are answerable to their superiors and ultimately to the public through its representatives for dereliction in their assigned duties. So voting is the ultimate recourse. Doesn't really help the three ladies who got raped or the guy who got his face broken in. Big help, right? If cops could be sued for not doing their jobs, liability for government would be massive. And again, that policy makes sense. The DC Court of Appeals concludes with this: Although recognizing the obligation of public employees to perform their duties fully and adequately, the law properly does not permit that obligation to be enforced in a private suit for money damages accordingly the court concludes that plaintiffs have failed to state claims upon which relief may be granted and accordingly all the complaints are dismissed so who do the police have a duty to perform for then their bosses and their elected officials i guess so certainly not to you certainly not to me certainly not to your mom certainly not to your bartender so protect yourself protect your family protect those important to you keep your guns if you want them if you don't want guns don't have them but if you have them or want them, keep them or get them. Because the cops have no duty to protect you. Only you do. I'm D.K. Williams and this has been The Law, Episode 24, Warren vs. District of Columbia. We're brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network. Always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Contact me on Twitter at BlueCarp and Facebook.com slash BlueCarp. Government is not a tool of liberation. It is a tool of oppression. Freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously.